You know, just uh, as I was standing there, I was just reminded in the context of the story that we're looking at, and we have been looking at over the past couple of weeks, there was a very well-known female artist who passed away last week um, by the name of Whitney Houston. And uh, the funeral, I believe, was this past Saturday, um, or maybe it was Friday, I can't remember exactly. But um, for many of you who know Whitney Houston, maybe early on, you guys ever seen the movie The Preacher's Wife? Um, really just a, a really nice Christmas movie, and in that movie, you know, she just really is an outstanding character, and uh, there was something at least wholesome about that movie to some degree, and, uh, and yet <clears throat> the personal life that, that took place and the way that she just went downhill um, was absolutely staggering and amazing, that someone with such giftedness um, and uh, a beautiful voice, um, a, you know, a, a a seemingly beautiful woman was captivated by a relationship that she would not release herself from that resulted in her going down and down and down and down. And in our passage, as we've been looking at this Samaritan woman, we have a woman who has been struggling with what? Relationships. And we we see that the plight to which she has gone, and Jesus certainly identifies that and Just like every good story, there are movements, there are milestones, there are crescendos, so to speak, and and that is certainly true about the story of of Jesus and his encounter with this woman at the well. It begins with a weary and thirsty Jesus seeking some water from this woman at Jacob's well. It transitions into a further discussion about drinking the living water, which truly satisfies and will be like a spring of water welling up within. And then the discussion transitions because it seems like she wants to move away from uh, what is being talked about, but it transitions ultimately to her condition and Jesus exposes her condition and then it shifts to this whole idea of worship. She asks this, this key question that distinguishes the Samaritans from the Jews. Where and on what mountain should we worship? And of course, Jesus responds by saying, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Gerizim or Jerusalem. Um, worship is really an issue and a matter of the heart. It's really something that can be done anywhere, not limited by a location. And, and then, of course, as he continues to talk to her and she recognizes there was something unique and special about him, he identifies himself as being the Messiah. And that is really where the story takes us up through verse 26 or so, but the true focal point of this whole story, I believe, is found um, not in that particular text, but found in verse 42 of our text. And let's just read that here. It says, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. This is the Samaritan people speaking to the Samaritan woman. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed, or this is indeed the Savior of the world. That is a profound passage of Scripture. It's a profound statement by these people. So it began with a lesson on living water that overflowed into a lesson on living worship. And today it overflows again into a lesson for us on living witness and being a living witness. And 
You may want to go back to John chapter 3 where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and be reminded of, of what it tells us there in that passage regarding the nature of regeneration, being born again, and the Holy Spirit's activity in that. In this passage, chapter 3 in particular, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is described figuratively as a wind. The wind blows where it wishes, verse 8 says, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So although we know that the Holy Spirit is at work, drawing people to himself, he's like that wind that is blowing around. We don't know exactly where the wind is going to blow, but we know that it is blowing. We know that he is at work. We know that the process of planting seeds and, and growing those seeds is taking place among people. So we don't know where necessarily, but we ultimately get to, in chapter 4 and verse 42, from we don't know where to we know. To this, this statement, this certain statement of we now know that he is the Savior of the world. And the question for us today, as we look at this passage, is this. How do we get from that place? How do we get from the not knowing, or being in darkness, or being blind to this place of being certain that Jesus is the Savior of the world? And the answer to that question is bound up in a word that has been used a number of times in the, the gospel so far, and it is the word witness. It's the word testimony. And the idea there of this word testimony and witness is simply declaring truth about God to those who may be present. We have that in the context so far. John the Baptist to the crowds declared and gave his testimony about Jesus who was to come. Andrew then gives testimony to Simon, chapter 1. In chapter 2, Philip gives testimony to Nathan. In chapter 3, Jesus gives testimony to Nicodemus. And then here we have the woman at the well who is receiving testimony from Jesus. These are all part of the, the package of evidence that John is unfolding for his readers. We get from this darkness, this blindness, this bondage to this place of, of freedom, of light, of sight, through witness, through verbally testifying about the good news of the gospel. And in this passage, in our particular passage, it is a witness of the living water. So for our purposes today, we want to ask this question. We want to ask ourselves, how is it that we are to be faithful witnesses ministering or witnessing the living water. And the answer that we're going to give from this passage is that he's going to give us three dynamics of a living witness. Three dynamics that we can embrace, that we can understand, that we can uh, see as vehicles through which we can become the kind of witnesses that God has called us to be. Now, when I say witnesses, don't get in your mind necessarily, you know, going out on Tuesday night and handing out tracts and that kind of stuff. We're just talking about living a life that is testifying the goodness and the greatness of God. Pointing to who He is. 
living life based on who he is and for his glory. And so the first one we're going to see is this, the power of a living witness. And we find that in verses 16 through 19. So let's read this final account of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. Remember, they went into town. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Now, the disciples certainly understood that Jesus um, was, was interacting with this woman. They understood, though, that he was really being a little unconventional. It didn't go with the grain of the cultural norms for him to be talking to a woman, but he is. And so it's interesting here that John puts in the kind of thought processes that were going through the minds of the disciples, right? No one said. <laughs> well, why even put that in there? No one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? And certainly the disciples may have been thinking about that, but they had enough sense to think the best of their master, of their rabbi at this time, knowing that what he was doing was culturally unconventional. It certainly wasn't sinful, but it didn't meet the norms of the culture. And he was breaching those norms, and he had a purpose. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar, and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I mean, she went into town and she declared what had happened to her and that this man could see into her heart and could tell when he didn't even know her, what her life was like and the kind of life that she lived, and the fact in particular that she had five husbands and now was living with her boyfriend in a state of adultery. And notice how they respond. They went out of town and were coming to him. So there's definitely something beautiful and something amazing that is going on in verses 28 and 29. There's something strategic here that John the Apostle gives us about her leaving this water jar at this well. You just got to get the picture here. She is traveling from the village, which if you remember we talked about was about a mile outside in the heat of the day to go to get water, cool water from this well. And when she gets there, she finds Jesus. Now I want to be careful because we could make this water jar be far more than actually what it is in the story. I don't mean here to spiritualize or to to try and force some spiritual truth into the symbolism here of this water jar, except to say this, that there is something significant about the fact that she left it there because she came to the well for what purpose? To get water. And she left to walk back another mile without the water jar, which indicates that something significant had taken place with her. Now, I want you to think about this. She traveled for that one mile to come to get water to satisfy her thirst or maybe to prepare for um, the the kind of activity or dinner at home. This is probably what she did every day. Now, we have a hard time thinking through this because we just go to the tap and turn it on. She probably did this every day. And, And she probably, you know, in the morning got up and said, oh, you know what, I need water. But 
seemingly wanted to avoid the crowds. And so she grabs the water jug, she walks the mile, she draws the water, she fills the jug, she walks another mile back home, all the while thinking about her life. Now, what do you think about when you're driving back and forth to work? What goes through your head? All the struggles and the problems that you're going through, right? You kind of run them through. When, you, know, you go on a walk and you say, oh, I want to get away from stuff, but you end up thinking about things. And you wonder whether she looked at her life and she was just thinking, you know, this is empty. This is just a routine. It's just over and over and over again. And, and I've tried to find satisfaction in all these places, but it just doesn't seem to be working out. And, you know, another relationship. And maybe there's just, just a regret of the choices that she's made. But now, having encountered Jesus at this well, she is so consumed with what has taken place that she's found this living water, she's tasted this living water, and the whole purpose and reason for her being there initially is completely out of her mind. It is insignificant now because she's not concerned about H2O. She's rejoicing in the spiritual living water that has been given her by the Messiah, by the Christ. Now, friends, the idea here I want you to see is this. She, she leaves the water jar, but she also goes into town and says, come and see. And ultimately, in the big picture here, um, I want us to see something that is really, really important. Because it says here in verse 29, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, notice the reaction of the townspeople. How do they respond to her testimony, to her witness? It says they went out of town, out of the town, and were coming to him. Now, what's really important here is this: is that what was taking place here was that they were coming in droves to Christ. This statement is in the Greek perfect tense, which means they're just coming and coming and coming. So this isn't just a few people that, oh, wow, this is cool. Let's go out and see what's going on. You know. We're talking about just a mass crowd of people that are coming out to find out what took place here. But ultimately here is the point. The power of a living witness is this. It is a life changed by the gospel. What happened to this woman? Her life was changed. And when the gospel is testified, when a witness is given, the power of that witness is a changed Life. And all of us can look at our lives if we know Christ is our Lord and Savior and we can look and we can say, hey, this is how God changed me. Maybe I should change it and ask this question. Has the gospel changed you? If Christ is now your Lord and Savior, if once you were in darkness, you were blind, you were in bondage, but now you're free and you're able to see, how has He changed you? Well, He changes his children, the gospel has an effect on his children in how they think, the things that we choose to do, the things that we say, and how we say them, how we behave, how we spend our time, our goals in life, our expectations in life, the values that we have, and it goes on and on and on. Our master radically changes our perspective, and that's a beautiful thing. Change takes place when a living witness is given and it has been received. So when one drinks the living water, 
it will have an effect on that particular person. There will be change. Let me put it this way. The weather vane of that person's inner man will now be oriented to the things of God. That person whose life has been changed, although maybe in an infant form, they will have a hunger and passion for the things of God. They will actually want to be around God's people because they will want to grow in their awareness and understanding of the things of God. You've probably seen it before. Someone who's a new believer and they're eager and they're hungry and you're kind of saying to yourself, all right, slow down a little bit, slow down. Because you may have kind of slipped into normalcy, at least what you think is normalcy, and they're hungry and thirsty and growing and eager and soaking it all up. The question isn't, what are you doing to bring personal change in your life? Get this. The question is, what is God doing through the Holy Spirit and His Word to bring about change in your life? Now, it's a very, very important distinction. We're talking here about moving from blindness to the land of sight, moving from darkness to the glorious light, moving from bondage to freedom. I remember, <clears throat> I think I've shared this story before, but I remember when I was um, in high school. I was an unbeliever. I, I had just received Christ as my Lord and Savior two days prior, and I was standing in the middle of what was known as the eagle's nest um, in my in this Christian school that I was now attending. And the Eagle's Nest basically was this. It was an old, it was an old shop um, where they would change oil for like trucks and stuff like that. So it was, it was this big open area and it had classrooms all around. So there was this big square. And so all around this square were lockers. And here's what happened. I'm in this big room. It's the high school is all gathered there. And one of my new friends yells out a question across the Eagle's Nest to me. And I respond just like I always responded. Oh, blankety blank, 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 blank. And there was kind of a humored hush across the room in this Christian school that wasn't used to that kind of language on display. And that good friend, seeing the occasion to his benefit, asked the same question again. And I responded naturally in the same way. Oh, blankety blank, 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 blank. And of course, people now are snickering and laughing. Of course, about this time, the high school principal had heard the first thing and came out to find out what was going on. And he came up to me afterwards, put his arm around me and said, Rod, you know that now that you're God's child, he will begin to take away those words from your life. And he did. See, I, di I didn't know. It was just natural. It was coming out. And friends, understand this. When we become a child of God, that doesn't mean that all of our habits are automatically zapped from us. God now reveals to us those habits, and we begin to see them in His light and according to His Word, and we begin to think to ourselves, aha, something needs to change. It's not just, oh, I need to change so I can look good to God. No, it's God that is working in me that results in change. It's a huge difference, and that's why I say it's not that you need to change, but it's that God needs to be the one who, by his Holy Spirit and his word, is changing us. So the power of a living witness is a life changed by the gospel. Are you changed? And 
are you changing? Because it is a lifelong, never-ending process going and becoming more like Christ in our walk with God. Then there's the priority of a living witness. And remember, Jesus has been on a long journey. He's tired, he's thirsty, he hasn't eaten for a while. And the disciples had just returned from town and seemingly with some food. And we pick it up at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, that's Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, let's think about this just in its normal sense. They just went into town, Jesus was at the well, and they come back and they're saying, hey, Master, Rabbi, you need to eat something. He's like, hey, listen, I've got food that you don't know about. And they're probably thinking, oh, okay, your backpack, you know, you have some beef jerky or something like that, what's going on? Maybe someone came and gave you something to eat. I mean, think about it, that's, that's the natural kind of idea of what's going on, but Jesus is still in spiritual symbolic mode. He's been talking about living water. And Jesus now begins to talk about food. And it's not literal food. It's something quite different. They don't realize it. And and verse 33 says this, So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Now there's a picture here, really, of often how we respond to things in life. God is in the process and the business of teaching us spiritual truths, but oftentimes we don't see them because all we can see is the natural stuff. Okay, and, and God wants us to pick up on the way in which he takes us through natural things to teach us spiritual truths. You know, why is it you guys went to, you know, that rock and jump place, whatever you want, right? Are there spiritual truths that you can glean from an experience like that? You know, and you, know, you could probably come up with a lot of things. But God takes us through times of, of difficulty and trial. Maybe you, know, maybe you got a flat tire. Maybe you were late in coming to church. Or, or, or maybe you, know, you burned dinner. Guess what? Those are all means by which God is desiring to teach us, right? Count it all joy when you fall into different trials, James says. Why? Because the, through that trial, he's doing what? Producing endurance. There's a goal. There's a purpose. Now, maybe you can recall sometimes in your life when you've been so consumed with anguish, anxiety, some kind of a purpose to, to do something or, or, or focus that is just, that, that eating is just not something you're thinking about. You've got to get it done. You've got to see it through. It's important. It's a priority. And so, accomplishing that purpose has now become your food. That is what's driving you. That's what's keeping you going. I've got to get it done. And that drive is like satisfying all of your body functions so that you can do what you need to do. And that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here, but in a spiritual sense. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is my food. It's not to do what I want to do, but it's to do his will. And then sim- secondly, to accomplish his work. idea there is to finish it. So to finish what I have been called to do. This is why I am here. This is what the Father called me to do. This is the divine plan. 
that I am a part of to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. So, we see the priority of Jesus and it, it is to be no less our priority to do his will and to accomplish his work. That's not unique to Jesus. I think as Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he's also wanting them to see the importance of doing the will of the Father and accomplishing his work. So here it, here's the principle then fleshed out. The priority of a living witness is a life channeled through the gospel. Now you might also say commissioned through the gospel. Both of these things are true. In other words, it is the gospel that is fashioning, that is shaping why you're doing what you're doing. It channels your purpose. It channels your work. It commissions you to do this for the glory of God, but it also fashions that for His glory. So not only does the gospel change us, but it channels a path for us, teaches us how to think, teaches us what we ought to be doing and how to live and how to prioritize in life. And Like Jesus, the priority for us should be to do the will of the Father and to accomplish His work. Now, Let's look at this will and work idea. I've often talked to people on the subject of God's will. Um, you know, people have come in and said, you know, Pastor, what do you think about this? I'm trying to discern God's will for my life. And you know, many times the questions have been things like, whom should, you know, should I marry? Is this the person that God wants for me? Or, you know, is this I'm considering a job change? Is this what what maybe, you know, God would have for me? Or um, you know, maybe they're, they're struggling with their finances or it's a, you know, at a college level, it's a choice of a major. Or maybe it's just some kind of a major decision in life. And, and I, I always have to ask a number of questions. And it's important to ask a number of these questions to find out how this person is even thinking and contemplating the will of God in their life. Here's the first question. Are you saved? Do you know God? Are you one of His children? Have you tasted the living water? Is that an important question? Yeah, because you're not going to be able to discern the will of God unless you are fashioned and shaped by the Holy Spirit who is working through His Word to make the will of God known to you. Secondly, are you studying God's Word? Are you taking time? Yes, on Sunday morning at church, and yes, maybe in a Sunday school class, and yes, in a Bible study class, but personally, opening God's Word, studying it, communing with Him, interacting and fellowshipping with him so that you have a grasp of his word and what he says. How can you know God's will if you can't hear him speak? Right? Third thing, are you spirit-filled? I do not mean are you a charismatic Christian. What I mean is, are you a believer who is controlled by the Holy Spirit in your life? That's what that whole idea of being spirit-filled means. Spirit-controlled. Does the Holy Spirit have control of your life? Or are you stiff-arming His conviction and the things that he is, he is bringing to your attention about your walk with God? Are you sanctified? Are you living a holy life? So when the Holy Spirit speaks and He says, you need to clean up this area in your life, are you willing to do it? And are you pursuing Christ in that area in your life? And then are you submissive? Are you submissive to God's Word? Are you submissive to, to, to the Spirit's guidance? Are you submissive to godly counsel? Now, oftentimes when people are asking questions about God's will, what? They already have a plan in mind. And typically they're trying to prove their plan. 
and they're going from, you know, to you, to other people, trying to find if there's anyone that will affirm what they want to do. You've probably heard me tell this story before, but it's about this, this town that just was in an uproar because apparently there, there was this guy that was this sharpshooter in town, and no one knew who it was, and you know, he was painting targets all over town, and he was shooting these targets out. It's just, you know, the police didn't know what to do, and they finally caught the guy, and they were like, you know, it's a hard time finding you, but how in the world did you do this? I mean, you must be quite a marksman. He said, no, no, it's quite easy. He says, I shot the bullet first, then I went and made the target. And that's often how people function as they say, this is God's will for me. Now prove to me that it isn't. They've already determined that it's God's will when it isn't necessarily true that it is God's will, but they want you to think it is. And they're drawing their own target of God's will when they've already made their decision. So when we're talking about the will of God, it's really important that we understand these points of principle, and there's far more to say there. In my experience, in talking with people about the subject of God's will, it's usually at the studying God's word question where the whole issue gets derailed. Because people typically are not taking time to know the word of God. We're living in a vast Christian culture that would much rather get a quick zap message from God than do the hard work of laboring through the, the word of God to find out what God says about what it is that they want to do. For example, I remember a lady came into my office one time and said, Pastor Rod, you know, I, I just want you to know um, I'm getting a divorce and you know the person and, and what he's like and all that kind of stuff. And I sat back there and I said, well, <clears throat> what does God's word say about what you want to do? Oh, um, well, I, I think God wants me to be happy and he knows that I'm in this horrible situation and that he would be okay with it. Well, let's find out what God's word says. And I took it to the passage it talked about here are the, the grounds for divorce. And you know, he wasn't committing adultery. He wasn't an unbeliever that was deserting her. There was no biblical grounds for it, but she was convinced it was God's will, not based on God's truth. And it wasn't God's will. But she had convinced herself that it was. And friends, this is what happens in the body of Christ when we are not willing to pick up the word of God and read it and understand his truth is there to fashion and to shape us in our understanding what God says and what he desires. So when we read this passage and we seek to understand that the priority of a living witness is a life that is channeled through the gospel in particular to do his will, that means that we must be people who are willing to pick up the word of God and allow it, not just as a cold piece of, uh, of literature, but a, a, a living, breathing word that is fashioned and shaped by the Holy Spirit that is speaking and screaming to us from God through so that we can know what his will is and we can apply it and we can do it. And honestly, the rest of the issues here flow out of your attitude to the word of God because if you have a healthy attitude to the word of God, you're much more likely to say, if God says it, I'm going to humble myself before the Holy Spirit and I'm going to do it and I'm going to want to be sanctified and I'm going to want to be submissive. Now, I just share all that to say, listen, this is what was driving Jesus. He wanted to do the will of his Father. He wanted to finish the work that he had been called to do. So God's will is not some kind of a foggy idea where it's like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And you walk outside and you look at the clouds and it forms that very thing that you were thinking about. You're like, ah, God spoke to me. No, there happened to be a cloud up there that in your mind met everything that you wanted it to meet. 
so you could convince yourself that that's what God wanted you to do. I don't know if you would, when you were a little, little kid, I remember when I was a little kid, I would, I would be in the bathroom. This is a horrible picture, but I'd be in the bathroom, and we would, <clears throat> we had this formica on the floor that had all these weird kind of shapes. And I remember I could look down, and, and they were like, like in squares kind of thing, but it had this, this face of, a, of an ugly kind of guy with a beard. It didn't, but all the different designs, you know what I'm talking about. And you sit there, and you're like, Ah, I want to hurry up and get out of here, you know, because all these faces are looking at me. And what I'm saying is that your mind forms things that aren't there. And the same is true, especially with the subject of God's will, because we typically want what we want. Now, Psalm 37.4 is just a great place to go. Would you turn there just for a minute? We're digressing a little bit here. But Psalm 37.4 is just a great passage to help us with this subject. Um, <clears throat> the thing I love about this is God promises that we will have the desires of our heart. Now this could be a great health and wealth and prosperity passage of scripture if it's misconstrued and twisted out of place. But notice what it says, Psalm 37.4. <clears throat> The psalmist here says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that great? He will give you the desires. Oh, great, God, you want what I want. Well, wait a second. Let's let's make sure we're reading this completely. Delight yourself in the Lord. If you delight yourself in the Lord, that means the Lord is the one who is fashioning and shaping you. You're delighting in his wishes. You're delighting in his character. You're delighting in his holiness and his plan and his objectives and all those things being true. When you delight yourself in him, guess what happens to you? Your desires end up being conformed to his desires. And when your desires are conformed to his desires and they are your desires, you will get the desires of your heart because they're now his desires because you've been delighting in him. You see that? So if you want to know God's will, what should you do? Delight in the Lord. Humble yourself before him. Open up his word. Spend time reading his word, shaping yourself with his word. Certainly seek counsel. But make sure that counsel is counsel that comes from the word, that is fashioning your life from the word. Pray. Fast. There's all sorts of things you can do, but make sure that it is the word of God that is fashioning and shaping and informing you And the other thing is be careful that you don't get too mystical about it all. The will of God isn't necessarily some kind of a mystical, um, euphoric experience. You know, about the guy who says, you know, a guy can take this a little too far. For example, the one one guy who wanted to marry this girl. And so um, he went and marched around her 13 times, claiming her just like, you know, the children of Israel marched around Jericho. It's just taking God's word and twisting it and abusing it and not using it in the proper sense, but being convinced if I do that, I'll get what I want. No, you allow the principles and the truths of God's word to, to truly have freedom to speak into what it is you're facing. And you say, God, I want to be humble to, uh, to your word. I want to be humble to you and your Holy Spirit. Give me wisdom to know what to do. Okay? We need to be people of the word, not just because we need to be full and, and, and just, just people who can spout off verses, but we want the word to go in and to do its work through our whole being. So 
um, <clears throat> that's where we need to, <clears throat> excuse me, where we need to consider as far as the word of God is, or the will of God is concerned, the word of God. Let me summarize it by saying this. <clears throat> God's will finds its source in God. He is revealing his will by the Holy Spirit through his word to submissive and sanctified children eager to do his will and not their own. He's putting it all together. He is revealing his will by the Holy Spirit through his word to submissive and sanctified children who are eager to do his will and not their own. So this isn't something you do grudgingly. You do it joyfully. You're delighting in the Lord. This is a priority for our witness. Now, what does this all look like in light of um, a living witness? And this is where we move on to the next thing. And that is that God is calling us to be planting, thank you, and reaping. Let's pick up at verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for, for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So this passage that we just read just begins with a proverb. The proverb basically is, is, is it's, it's, it's a proverb from the natural world. And it basically says there are four months between sowing and the harvest. But that may be true in the natural world, but that isn't true in the spiritual world. In other words, the harvest is already here. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait those four months. It is already here. And so there's this symbolism that, that takes place in this passage in the expression, the fields are white for harvest. Now certainly, Jesus could be sitting at that well and there may have been a field and a farmer and, and it being kind of ready at that season to, to be harvested. That's one picture that may be there. But I think there's a different picture that's going on. We, I touched on it earlier. Remember when the Samaritan woman went into town, she says, come and see, could this be the Christ? And it tells us that this, this crowd of people and literally were coming out in droves from the village. Now you just got to put your, put your mind's eye back in that context and typically in the heat of that desert kind of sun. And, and if you've been to Israel, you know what it's like over there, but but more in the wilderness area, when it's hot outside, what kind of color do people typically wear? White, kind of light, earthy colors. And can you imagine, all these people are on their way now to this well, and Jesus is looking out with this crowd of people coming, and they're like these white fields ready for harvest. And who has already been doing the sowing? And the disciples are ultimately going to benefit by being part of the what? The reaping. What an incredible picture. What a beautiful lesson for these disciples together to experience. So the priority is first to do the will and the work of the Father, but that priority is fleshed out um, by this ongoing activity of God's children being sowers and reapers 
with the gospel of living water. Now, you've all heard about the Grim Reaper, right? The Grim Reaper is all about death. But God is calling each of us to be glad reapers who are all about ministering life and life that comes through the living water, which is a symbol, really, in a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are agents of life. And listen, if we're agents of life, it doesn't matter who sows, it doesn't matter who waters, it doesn't matter who reaps, ultimately we know that it is God who has been at work through the whole process, right? And that's why he says in this passage, listen, listen, you're going to be reaping where you haven't sown. And this changes our perspective a little bit on how we do ministry. This changes our perspective on the whole idea of witness. Sometimes we're going to be planting afresh the first seeds thrown on soil that may be a heart prepared by God. And remember, the wind blows where he wills, right? The Holy Spirit is active wherever he wants, so we're, we're planting the seed. Someone comes along and, and waters on that. Someone else comes along and waters on that. And you might be the person who walks up and you know, this person at that point in time, as you're interacting with them, the, the floodgates open up, all right, regeneration has taken place, there's this joy, there's this exuberance, new life is, is now present within this person. And we all rejoice because we recognize there is a partnership going on in the gospel for the whole idea of seeing the harvest take place. There's a partnership, it's not a personal thing, and so we, we don't you know, we don't try and, you know, create competition in this whole arena. We simply rejoice together regardless of our role, whether it's sowing, watering, or reaping. The priority, then, of a living witness is a life channeled through or commissioned by the gospel. And this life will be seen in time. And ultimately, in our passage, we find the third thing here, the proof of a living witness. The proof of a living witness. We've seen the power We've seen the priority that Jesus gives, and that is to do the will of the Father, to accomplish His work through sowing and reaping. And now we find the proof. Here is the evidence. Here is what is on display for us to see. For them, the Samaritans, it all began with this witness. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony, He told me all that I ever did. There's the witness. So here we have this, this wonderful picture of how this woman's witness affected their lives. Now, let me just say this very, very carefully. Don't discount the impact of God on a life that will draw others to himself. This woman was the most unlikely woman, you might want to say, who would make a good Christian. Have you ever heard anyone say, you know, that person's an unbeliever, but they would make a real good Christian? Well, you're measuring them on all the wrong levels. Here is a candidate whose relationships have been turned upside down, who is now living in adultery, who was apparently ostracized even by that culture to some degree, avoided to some degree, going back to her village and saying, Psh, I met a man and he told me all. You need to come and see. I think he's the Christ. A life changed by the gospel is an attractive thing. 
Others are watching. Others are observing the changes that are taking place in you. They're asking questions in their hearts. Oh, they might put on some kind of a tough exterior. They might even be cynical or confrontational with you about your faith, but they're still watching. They're seeing if what you have is real. And the seed may be planted. The seed may be somewhere at work, but they're afraid. They're not ready to expose what's going on there. The important thing for us to note here is this. You don't change you. That's reform. We talked about it earlier. It is God who changes you. That is regeneration. So any change that takes place within you finds its source in God being, being lived out now for his glory. If you change you, you still have blind spots. You still are blind. You're given to, to, to your own ways of thinking. You have not been recreated. But God has changed you. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What? For good works. You're his workmanship. He is the one shaping and fashioning you. And your conscience will be under the care of that Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity. So after the witness of this woman comes the ministry of the Word. So when the Samaritans came to him, Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And many more believe because of the word. Isn't that just a beautiful thing? Here's just a wonderful picture of a growing group of believers. Some believers have already come to the place where they've tasted the living water. They've heard the testimony of the Samaritan woman. And they've believed. They've come to the place where they embrace Christ already as the Messiah. And they now invite him to stay and to teach them more. And as he teaches them more, what happens? Other people who didn't know who he was, who had also heard the testimony of others now, are coming and listening to him. And they are also believing. It's a great picture of the church, of the the gathering of people for the glory of God to learn about the things of God. And there are some of us who have been Christians for years and some of us have been Christians just for a short time and there are some of us here are still trying to figure out is this what God has for me and that's a wonderful thing and it's an ongoing reality but there's something significant about this text that we must ponder verse 42 they said to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is is indeed the Savior of the world. We know. What does that sound like to you? Sounds to me like a settled conviction in the heart that what they have been told about, that they have believed, now is true because they have heard it from Christ It's been reinforced, and they are settled in their understanding. So we have a witness, testimony to the word that is taught, and then ultimately to the settled reality that they are certain that Jesus is the Christ, ultimately that he is the Savior of the world. So here is the basic principle then. The proof of a living witness is a life confident in the gospel. Now, if you're, if you're a child of God, and you know you're a child of God, and you're certain you're a child of God, and you're confident you're a child of God, that is because God has been at work in your life confirming and confirming and confirming and confirming. 
That doesn't mean that there aren't times when maybe a preacher's preaching or you're reading a passage of Scripture and you kind of, ooh, I've got to ask that question. I, I, I know I'm a believer, but boy, there's some doubts there. If, if I'm leaving, living this way, then you know, what does that mean? That's okay. The warnings are helpful to move us along to growth in Christ. Understand that. But it is our understanding and our confidence about, based on what God says that gives us this conviction, this settled conviction that we know that we are God's children, that we have an inheritance, that we're adopted, that we are justified, all those things being true and more. We know those things to be true. And that, that gives us stability, that gives us confidence as we live for his glory. So the point here isn't that they're, they're kind of um, putting down her testimony but it's the reality of their growth in the gospel that began with a witness and ends up as a certainty in their hearts. And this is exactly what John is aiming at in his gospel. Turn once again to that great passage, John 20, and verses 30 and 31. And we just kind of see where John is going related to his basic theme. John chapter 20, 30 and 31, this is what John is aiming at. Verse 30 now. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. And don't get off track with the word signs. It means just works. He did many things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, that's what's going on here with this Samaritan woman. That's what's going on here with the Samaritan people. There's evidence, and that evidence has resulted in belief, and that evidence that results in belief has turned into life. It's a living water, living worship, and a living witness that is fleshed out in this passage. So to believe, then, is the same thing as to say, we know that he is the Savior of the world. So what began as the spirit blowing where he wishes ends with a group of outcast Samaritans who have worshipped and distorted, uh, worshipped a distorted and false god of their making. But now they are bowing before Jesus the Messiah and they are certain of the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, what's really important for us to see here is that John has been kind of building this crescendo. And I want, I want us to see this crescendo that he builds in chapter 4 in particular, and you could even say in 1 through 4 up to this point. Let's think about chapter 4, though. When Jesus came as a Jew asking for water. Um, <clears throat> not only did he come as a Jew asking for water, but he is also in that passage, the question is thrown out, are you greater than Jacob? And we know the answer to that question, don't we? Yes, he is greater than Jacob. He is perceived to be a prophet. He is identified as the Christ, the Messiah. And finally, he is identified here as the Savior of the world. And friends, that is a significant statement that John is using right now at this point. The expression Savior of the world is a purposeful title because no one at that time, no one at that time or in that culture, was really looking for a savior of the world. The Jews were looking for a savior for Jerusalem. The Samaritans were looking for a savior for Samaria. The Greeks were looking for a savior of Greece, and 
The Romans were looking to save Rome. They weren't looking for a savior of the world. But God in his wisdom isn't thinking about one particular group of people uniquely alone. He's thinking globally. He's thinking about the world. Well, the question that we have to ask is, what is this world? And this word world is used like over 180 times um, in the New Testament. I think about 160-something times in the Gospel of John. It is John's word through and through. And it's the word cosmos. And ultimately, when we study it out, means all those who are part of the human race, ultimately, especially later in John's Gospel, who oppose the things of God. It's man without God. It's man opposed to God. Now, let's go back in the few chapters that we've studied so far, and let's just think through this idea of world. Go back to John chapter 1 and verse 9. John chapter 1 and verse 9. The true light, talking here about Jesus, which gives light to everyone, which then would be the gospel, was coming into the what? World. This is how he's beginning. In the beginning was the world, word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word then is the light who comes bearing light, and he is coming into the world. Then we go to verse 29 of chapter 1. Here is John the Baptist bearing testimony. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the what? world. Then we go to John 3.16. You probably don't have to turn there. You probably know what it says. But for God so loved what? The world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And now the crescendo verse, verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Evidence, belief, life. Jesus on display. Jesus on display. Jesus on display. He's the light. He's the lamb. He's the son. He's the savior. And the savior of the world is calling his children to keep drinking at the well of living water. Don't stop. Remember, it's, it's, a, it's a fountain that is just welling over and over, and it's there for us to, to be satisfied and to be nourished and strengthened every day. It's not just a one-time drink. It's a one-time drink that has eternal consequences and means that we can live on that water every day. So he's calling for us to drink on that well of living water. He's calling us to praise him in our hearts with a living worship that, is, that is, finds its source in that living water. It's the living water that has streams flowing out of it. And one of those streams is this worship and this idea that in our hearts we worship God. Wherever we are, whatever circumstance we're in, we can worship him. We can glorify him. We can say, God, you are great, you are glorious, and I humble myself before you and I praise you for what I have and who I am, because it's only because of you that I am who I am today. And it's only because of you that I can find strength to, to meet this trial or to face this, this obstacle. <clears throat> and then finally here, the Savior of the world is calling his children to keep working the harvest 
as living witnesses. He calls us to do that. And he's saying to us, look around. There are people walking around as if they're clothed in white. They're like a, they're like a harvest field ready for harvest. Now, we don't know. We don't know where the gospel has been planted. We don't know where the reaping is going to take place, but it's out there. And we may be surprised at the way in which reaping takes place if we would only testify, if we would only witness, if we would only open up our mouths in the places and the context that God gives us to share the good news of the gospel. Now, sometimes that can be formal, but most times it's casual. Most times it's, you know, it's, it's you know, in, in line somewhere or it's with a neighbor or a coworker, or it's you're in a car or you really want to get someone, take them out for four hours of golf or something like that. You know, they can't leave. They're in that golf cart with you the whole time. You know, so you have four hours. Start quickly and say, you know, you're going to hell. All right, let's talk about it for the next four hours, all right? You know, it's just, yeah. Yeah, but it's just life. God gives us life to be the opportunity so that we can testify and be a witness for his glory. Now, part of the problem is that maybe we've been in the context where we think that, that you know, salvation or conversion or the growth of the body takes place because of my work and my efforts and my need to do this and that. And when that's the case, it's bondage, it's drudgery. And I've been there. But friends, I just want to tell you, live your lives in such a way where talking about the things of God is just a part of who you are and what you do, and you're doing it also with a, an understanding there's a purpose behind that. And who knows, along the way, those conversations may turn into deeper conversations where you can actually give the water of life or maybe reap where someone else has sown. But God's called us to that. And we give him all the glory and we trust him to do what he's promised that he's going to do and we just simply want to be faithful servants of his. Lord, help us today to receive the strength and the guidance that you desire for us to have from this incredible encounter that you had with this woman at the well and even your interaction with the disciples and the rest of the Samaritans that were in that village. Lord, what, a, what an amazing picture. And Lord, may we not think that similar things could not happen when we simply open our mouths and testify. Maybe, would you help us, Lord, to, to fight that, that battle against unbelief? But, Lord, to live with, with hearts that want to believe you, that what you show us in your word to be true and the counsel you give us from your word and through the disciples and by virtue of, of uh, proper understanding and interpretation, Lord, would, would help us to see that, that you are at work even in what seems to be a field that isn't ready for harvest. We may be looking at it through our lens rather than the gospel lens. And Lord, help us to put on your glasses to see things, Lord, in a way that you want us to see them. And then, Lord, to be glad reapers. Thank you, Lord, for, for the promise, the counsel that you give us, Lord, for our responsibility and what you've called us to. But Lord, even greater than that, Lord, is to see you on display and to see how you have interacted with us. And Lord, how you came to us in our lives and you asked us for a drink in some way, shape, or form, Lord. You came and you started knocking on the door of our heart and we needed to come 
to a place we would say, I want to drink. And Lord, you put that in us and you drew us to yourself. And Lord, we have, we have come to know you as our Lord and Savior. And Lord, we find our satisfaction in you and help us, Lord, to keep drinking at this well that is full of living water. For Lord, you give it to us freely, but at a cost. And Lord, it is for your glory that we live our lives now, we ask in your name. Amen.